True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm your host, Nicole Engelbrecht. And today, instead of a spotlight minisode, I have an interview for you on a subject that I found really interesting, and I have no doubts you will too. Before we get into today's episode, though, I'd like to thank our newest Patreon supporter, Cindy Meiring. Cindy, thank you so much for signing up to support the show through Patreon. It is hugely appreciated. If you'd like to support the show through Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave the links in the show notes. As always, any form of support is welcome, and it doesn't have to be financial. Things like inviting your friends and family to listen, interacting on our social media pages, and sharing episodes are all excellent ways to support the show. We've added over 500 new members to our Facebook group just in the last week, and a lot of that came from people inviting their friends. Today I'm interviewing three people, Wendy Nicklin, Amory Kemp, and Antu Paroyan. Wendy came across True Crime South Africa and made contact as she thought that we'd find the work they do interesting, and she was definitely not wrong. Wendy, Amory, and Anto make up the team at Micro Expression Solutions. They're a company and training provider that specializes in truth, lie, and deception detection. There are several aspects to what this team does, and we'll cover all of them in the interview today. Human beings lie all the time. Even the most honest people over-exaggerate or deceive others or themselves in some way. We're also very aware of when we're not telling the whole truth, even if we try and convince ourselves otherwise, and even the most adept liar cannot control every single aspect of what their body does when they're not telling the truth. You see, our subconscious mind is apparently not a fan of deception. And the minute you start over-exaggerating, trying to hide something, trying to minimize something, or outright lying, you start to exhibit signals that you cannot control. And that can be picked up by the trained eye. This is the basis of what Microexpression Solutions does and teaches. In the context of crime, if you're a big true crime fan, you would likely have heard about some of these signals while watching shows or listening to podcasts. We're told, for instance, that if someone starts talking about a missing person in the past tense, they likely have knowledge that the person is deceased. There are also more overt signals that some of us have learned to look for, like avoiding eye contact and fidgeting during an interrogation. What I learned from chatting to the team we'll hear from today, though, is that those things are just the tip of the iceberg. Actually, they're a single ice crystal on the tip of the tip of the iceberg. In short, the work that this team does in identifying possible deception 
is so complex that what we think we know is pretty much negligible. The good news, though, is that we can all learn to do what they do. Microexpression Solutions works in a wide range of situations, and you'll hear them talk about some of those situations in the interview. They work in the criminal field, observing recorded interviews, analysing statements, and advising people in law enforcement and the judiciary. They also work in corporate environments, though, helping employers to better understand the true dynamics of what's happening within their teams. The wide range of applications for this team's skill is mind-blowing. Thinking about lying on your insurance claim? Go for it, as long as you don't mind this trio analysing your statements on behalf of your insurance company, which is one of the things they do, by the way. Considering over-exaggerating your experience in a job interview? I'm sure you'll get away with it, unless your interviewer has been trained by micro-expression solutions. I'll give you more background to the science behind what the team does as we go, but the foundation of their science in layman's terms, so my terms, is assessing the minute changes in body language, facial expressions, movement, tone of voice, and other involuntary actions when a person is sitting in front of them or when they've been filmed or recorded. They don't need to see you in person though, as they also do what's called statement analysis, where they can take any written statement, and that includes conversational emails and text messages, and analyse them for changes in word usage, unnecessary changes in language, and word choice. So they're basically like human lie detectors, right? Well, no. They're actually better than that. We all know that polygraph tests and voice stress analysis tests are not accepted as evidence in court. But a report from Microexpression Solutions is accepted as evidence. One of the main reasons for this is that they work on the basis that they can detect the possibility of deception. They will tell you themselves that they don't call people liars. Their work is used as a tool to figure out when people are not expressing what is really on their minds. There could be many reasons for that, and it doesn't always mean the person is outright guilty of something. The person could be trying to hide something for another reason, they may be protecting someone, or their expressions may be related to another incident entirely. When the team provide a report, it's used as a tool for further investigation, and it provides clarity to hidden motives and agendas. Before we get into the interview, I do want to give a bit of a disclaimer. You'll hear about some of the indicators that the team uses today, and you, like I did, will learn about some things that could indicate deception. These individual indicators cannot be used in isolation to determine if someone is lying. When the team analyzes, they do so in a holistic way. They look at many different indicators and clusters of words. 
So please do not go home tonight and accuse your spouse of lying because you heard on True Crime South Africa that if someone says X, it means they're lying. The human mind is far more complex than that, and that's not how it works. The team has selected one of the cases that I've covered on the podcast to analyse today. That case is the infamous Krugersdorp Killers, which I covered really early in the podcast, in episode 4. They'll be analysing statements and behaviour exhibited by some of the killers in this case, from footage taken from the court case and interviews. They've provided me with transcripts of each statement, and I'll put those up on our social media platforms so that you can follow along if you want to. If you don't have access to those, it's not a train smash, and you will be able to follow the analysis just as well without them. Right, enough from me. Let's meet the team and find out what they do and how the heck they got involved in this interesting field. Here is Amari Kemp, co-CEO of Microexpression Solutions. We started off in South Africa. It's my baby that I brought up. And I studied psychology at Old RIU. I love people and I love language. So to combine the two, to work with people and with their language, that was the birth of what you see at this point in time. Anto is with me, co-CEO of the company. He's in Cyprus. He's doing the EU part of the company. I do the South African part. Wendy do all our PR. She runs with everything, contact all the people. So that's basically everyone's where we stand. And this is Anto Parian, the other co-CEO of the company. As Amari said, he's based in Cyprus and runs the EU end of the business. He focuses predominantly on their corporate clients at the moment. And here he explains to us how he got involved in the work he does and the value it adds. From my side, I'm, I am a people's person, so... For the last 20 years or so, I have been working in sales, marketing, more on the interaction of people. At a very young age, I started wondering why certain people were better at sales rather than others. You know, what set them apart? So there is selling techniques, obviously. There is a lot of listening rather than talking and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, the one thing that, that, that it boils down to is the psychology. So if you're able to understand your prospect or the person that you're trying to sell something, irrelevant as to what it is, uh, you have to be able to you know, understand, empathize, become self-aware and see what the issues are. Now, in any sales process, the most difficult part is the closing. So closing means is when you're trying to get the sale. And that's when over 90% of your prospects will come up with all sorts of objections or all sorts of excuses not to buy from you. It's at that point in time where I found out that psychology is very important and not only on the emotional intelligence side of things, it's also on the aspect of you know, micro-expressions, lie detection, word usage, statements, uh, body language, you know, facial expressions, and so on and so forth. So I think much like everybody else that's in this field and is doing what we are doing, it started from being a people's person and trying to find out more from people without them actually telling you 
again, from my experience, I deal in soft skill development. So we do things like time management, customer service, sales, probing, and so on and so forth. But this aspect has taken uh, a more specialized route whereby we deal with companies, we deal with lawyers, we will deal with anybody that's looking to use our services. And it can be probably in any sector out there from security, you know, uh, general companies looking to hire people. So during the HR or during the interview process from an HR perspective to reading a statement to basically anything out there. So what we do, you can use it anywhere. And at the same time, it is a unique skill. So not everyone can do this. It is something that has been of interest to me also personally for, for many, many, many years and um, delving deeper into, you know, things like statement analysis and finding out more information from people without them telling you something, they are actually telling you something. So yeah, so it's just interesting on so many levels. And it gives a whole new dimension when having a conversation with someone, listening to the words that they're using, and also seeing their body posture and the micro expressions without them knowing that they're actually portraying or conveying that message to you. And the third member of the team is Wendy Nicklin who focuses on the business's PR side, but is also a fully trained practitioner. Well, my background is predominantly logistics. And as Anto said, in a nutshell, basically logistics is also sales bound. Um, it's convincing people. It's, it's also problem solving. So I've always been interested also in psychology what people think, how they do things, how they, you know, their mind works. And that's good for problem solving. So I've been interested in crime since very young. And it fascinates me why people do the things they do. When I'm bored and I'm not looking back at all, it's extremely exciting and interesting. So now that we've met the team, let's delve down into the science of deceptionology and exactly how the team does what they do. Wendy Nicklin wrote an article from which I've drawn some of the following information. The team will describe it best themselves, but I thought I'd give you some background before that. You will have heard the term micro-expression a lot, and the following is the definition of the term from the company's website. Quote, A micro-expression is an involuntary, slight and brief expression on a human's face when a person is trying to deliberately hide or suppress an emotion. It will mostly occur in high-stakes situations when a person has something to lose or gain. It can be easily missed and most investigators don't see it at all. Not because they can't, they just don't know what to look for. End quote. There's another term you'll hear used, and that is SCAPE, S-C-A-P-E. This stands for Statements, Credibility, Assessments, and Practical Evaluation. This is actually a tool that the team use to analyze statements. And according to Wendy's article, it contains more elements than any other statement analysis tool available today. The practical evaluation aspect of the SCAPE tool is completely unique and doesn't form part of any other method of statement analysis used across the globe. With that background, 
Here's the team with more information about what they do. What we do is we look at statements and to give you an example, if you hear somebody say actually, you know immediately there's a lot of words that you know immediately that they are comparing two thoughts. Actually is one of them. So if I ask Anto, Anto, did you buy a truck? And he says, no, actually I bought a car. He's comparing the truck to the car. So it's always two things you are comparing. If you look at a statement or you interview somebody, read the words that they are using because subconsciously they will always use the words that they mean. Every single word means something. So if they use different words for different things, say for instance, I refer to Anto as him, or Anto or my partner, you know immediately, why don't I just call him my partner or why don't I just call him Anto? That's just an example. So you always look at the language side of what they are saying to you, telling you during an interview, when you go through statements, which we do, we teach people how to do this. We've got different courses available, like you can get a diploma in deceptionology. We are accredited with the International Microexpressions Association. I'm the only one in the in South Africa that has it. I bought the rights and the same with Anto. So he's the only one in the EU that can say that if you study with us, you are accredited with the International Microexpressions Association. We are currently busy with the Behavioral Methodology Organization as well to get our accreditation there and uh, get that off of the ground. And then we are working to get you, uh, the people, SACWANS and the SETA accreditation in South Africa. And then there's a lot of governments that we work with that acknowledge us and uh, they phone me and ask me for my students. Look at the statements and look at the specific words that they use. And the main thing here is you can't use a polygraph in court, but you can use our analysis and reports in court. Even with the voice stress analysis, you can't use that in court and you can't use the polygraph in court. But you can use our statement analysis on our website. We do a special report and we give it to the attorneys or the judges, whoever wants it, and they can take it and work through that and see where there's deceptive indications and where there's clusters we usually work with clusters if there's a lot of deceptive words we call it clusters and you can see once they begin to be deceptive they keep on being deceptive but if they speak to you out of their heart and in truth you know that they are telling the truth by what they say you can even analyze a whatsapp message with skype I ask the team about the good old tactic that we always hear about, that I mentioned in the beginning. If someone goes missing, let's say in this case it's a woman and her husband appears on television or talks to the police and starts talking about her in the past tense, does that mean that he has knowledge that she is no more? In other words, he's done something to put her in the past tense? It's uh, uh, most most of the times it is true that they they do know something if they start talking in the past. It's just human that you don't work through grief that quickly. I I lost my father a couple of years ago and I still talk like, as if he's here. 
And then I catch myself and I have to go back and say, um, he was, and that's what we did. It is true, but you must be very careful because we work in, work with clusters. So if you only get this one thing that doesn't make sense, it's, it's not necessarily that this, uh, this person knows what's going on. You must go and look at clusters because they give themselves away in everything they do and say. So you won't just look at one aspect, you will look at a couple of aspects. And that really highlights the complexity of what the team does. You cannot look at one aspect of a person's speech, behavior or micro-expressions and say that they're lying or being truthful. The old saying goes, a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. Very, very dangerous thing. You, you must know what you're doing. You can't take every person and say this applies to every single person. You get different people, different ethnicities, uh, different uh, beliefs, everything. You have to take that in consideration when you do the statements, when you do the interviews. Uh, another example I can give you, you uh, usually you start telling a story in a logical structure. But when people are upset, say, for instance, let's take, let's take a rape victim. If she's upset, she will tell it in an unstructured production way because she, she's upset. So you won't get a logical structure. And when people read books and they read logical structure and a rape victim come and she starts saying things uh, at the beginning that should be at the end, they just automatically take it that she, she's, she's lying. She doesn't structure her story in a logical way but we look at the unstructured production and at the background of where she come from and why is she mixing up her story exactly and that's that's something that a lot of people get mixed up and that's what i meant that you know if you don't have the background you haven't practiced and you haven't gone through the processes you will make a, a rookie mistake as they call it where if someone says something you automatically say ah yes that person is lying that's not the case you have to look at the clusters you have to look at the body language the micro expressions what are they saying how are they saying and you have to incorporate everything into a a, a, a synopsis of well that person i've ticked off saying they did this 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 and that so it's indicating that they're lying it doesn't mean that they are lying but they're indicating shows that they aren't being uh, as truthful as possible. So that's something that we're also trying to tell our students that it's not just one or two things. You have to look at the, the bigger picture. It's a puzzle. You can't understand how to build the puzzle of three pieces if it, it contains a thousand, right? But if you put 50 pieces together, you kind of know what the puzzle is going to look like at the end of the day. So that's also something very important. So when someone is talking about someone in a, in a past tense, it might even be that the police have told them that, you know, your wife, your husband is probably dead or is dead because of these circumstances. And you might be convincing yourself. But again, you can't just look at the statement. You'll have to look at everything else. So, for example, when the person is speaking about a loved one in the past tense, what is their emotion? What is the micro expressions? What's the body language? Is it that of sorrow? Is it that of guilt? Is it that of remorse? And then that kind of gives it away. And then you can then tap into and probe into uh, the additional underlying factors as well. And I think that brings another really important aspect of something we think we know when we look at criminal cases. We've become convinced that when someone is telling the truth, 
their story will always be told in exactly the same order, with the same details and in the same way. And if someone deviates from that, then they must be lying. Well, this teaches us that that's not the case. There are many different factors that contribute to the way a person tells their story or gives a statement. And if we only look at one aspect, we will most certainly miss the truth. Yeah, not only changing the story, but like Amori mentioned, if they're following a specific structure, you would feel like as if you're listening to a story or you're having someone read you a story. That you know that it's actually a story in their mind and it's part of the fantasy rather than anything else. It's not actual true reflection of what's happened. But if, they, if they're muddling up the, you know, what happened and then, oh, let me go back and then this happened and then I forgot to tell you this, that means that they're actually talking from their feelings. So the things that affected them the most, they will probably concentrate on the most and the smaller details they will add in between those most important point, points or the parts. But if they tell you the story from A to Z, following the alphabet correctly, then you know that something is not right because there's no actual feeling or emotion in that story that they're telling you. So what happens when the statement is not made in the moment and a person has time to prepare a statement? Does that give them a better chance of getting away with deception? The answer, according to the team, is no. Because of the wide range of tools they employ and various aspects they look at, whether someone is giving their statement five minutes after an event or three months later in writing, it makes little difference to their ability to detect possible deception. We take things in con consideration like the places and the location where it happened, the events, where did this happen, the time and the dates, the persons that was involved, the obstacles, the objects, the numbers, the feelings, like bodily feelings, uh, they are cold, they're nauseous, the actions and the interactions, the verbs that they use, the pronouns, the emotions, the tenses. It's very complex, but if you, and it's, it's information overload in the beginning when you start studying this, but as you take it and you take it into your, your life and you apply it, it's wonderful. It starts to be, it's a, a way of living. And with children, you can, uh, children don't know big words. They can't use big words. So when they start using big words in an interview, they will say, for instance, there was a, a break-in. They will tell you an evil Superman broke in. But when they, were, they rehearsed it, they will tell us uh, there was a guy that came in and he broke into our house. Then you know exactly this child has been coached to say what he is saying. Uh, claims of insurance agencies. People lie a lot on insurance to get paid out. And then they, they contact us and ask, us, they write, ask him to write it down and write the whole incident down and they give it to us and we go through it and we left it out. And we just send it back. We, we write a report, send it back, say this is what we found. And we think this is a legal claim or this is, uh, we have concerns. Please address the concerns and get clarity on that. Because we also look, if, if it's an interview, we look at the mental state, the conduct, the way of behaving, the intention, the concurrence or consistency in the story, the caution, 
the causing of producing of the event. We looked at every single thing. Oh, sorry, also to add some cut on what you just said, Nicole, if someone is taking their time to write the statement up, again, they can't hide the word usage. So you will be able to pick up things that you know that the person is writing for you to be able to believe them rather than this is actually what happened, right? So even if they sit down and they think about what they need to write, and this happened on multiple cases that we've seen, if they sit down and they have time to write and they have the lawyer next to them telling them what to write, the word usage, the way that they're writing, the words that they're using, the tenses and everything will eventually show you that they are being deceitful or they have been coerced or coached to put the statement as such. So again, you can pick this up. So even if they have the time, all the time in the world to sit down and to think up of the story and to make the statement you know, foolproof, you can still pick up signs and then you can elaborate on those specific points. I just wanted to also elaborate on the second point that Omri made is that, you know, when you hear people say, for example, like if, if your telephone is down, right, and you phone the company or your electricity down, you phone the company, you get to the customer service people. And usually the customer service people, they have a script. So they say, hi, good morning, what seems to be the issue? And then if you tell them what the issue is, they flip to that specific page and they say, well, have you tried to reset your modem? Have you tried to switch on the... And you know that it's been rehearsed because they're reading from the script. You feel automatically, without even seeing them, it's a regurgitated text that they're reading. It's not something that they are saying from themselves. So when you're listening to someone or you're reading the, the statement, you pick up exactly the same thing. You can tell that it's been coerced. You can tell that it's been asked or coached or trained for that person to say that specific sentence in that specific way. And you automatically feel that it doesn't make sense or you feel that something's not right. And then you would then start asking more questions and elaborate on what they've said. And then, you know, then the story kind of falls apart and they say, well, they told me to say this or, you know, I was told if I had said this, it would have been easier for me and then so on and so forth. And then you would take it from there. So there are essentially three aspects to what MicroExpression Solutions does. There is the service they provide to law enforcement, businesses and anyone else who requires their services. Then there's the training they provide. I've mentioned before that you can learn to do what the team does, and they have several different courses that you can take to learn to read micro-expressions and analyze statements. All of the information regarding their courses is available on their website, which I'll link in the show notes, and it is definitely something I want to get around to doing very soon. Here's the team with some more info on their courses. We've launched MEX3. We had MEX1 and MEX2, that's the micro-expressions. And then we went on to the face puzzle where you look at the person, where, where his ears sit, where cheekbones is, where everything is that you can analyze the person from just looking at him or her. We've got MEX1, 2, and 3 now. And then we've got SCAPE, so that's the statement analysis, assessment, and practical evaluations. That's where you take the statements or emails or WhatsApp messages, whatever you do or talk, and you analyze the words the people use. We started at the beginning of March. We launched the profiling as well to profile, but you must have MEX1, 2, and 3 and SCAPE as a background to do this, to do the profiling. 
I love what I do, and I know Wendy and, and Anto especially love what they do. That's why we're here. The diploma is two years. Then you get mix one, two, and three, and Skype. That's when, then you get the diploma on deceptionology. So it works out a, a year for Skype, and then tell the people, because some of them work, and they do this part-time. Then we tell them, take six months for mix one, take six months for mix two, and six months for mix three, and work in between on Skype. And we sign NDAs with our students as well, because we work with active cases and we teach them on active cases and cases that just been finished so that they can see the relevance of it. I mean, at the end of the day, it is something that's a unique skill. It is something that you can learn, obviously, but uh, you can only get really good at what you're doing is if you keep on going through the processes on a daily basis. Now, people might say, you know, why would I need this for? I'm not a private investigator. or I'm, I am not a lawyer. Why would I need to be able to, you know, sharpen my skills on the emotion intelligence, or on the lie detection, deceptionology? The thing is that you can use it at any point in time, whether it's in negotiating a better deal with your boss, whether it's during an interview, uh, whether it's even buying a car or a home. The applications are endless. And that's why we're trying to reach out to as many people as possible. And the passion part comes in where we're, we're, we want to do the pro bono work because not only we're passionate, but we also want to serve justice to specific cases that you know, we do see some sort of inconsistencies uh, at any given time. You would have heard Antor mention pro bono work. And that's the third aspect of what microexpressions solutions do and what they want to do more of. For those of you who don't know the term, pro bono is a shortened version of the Latin phrase pro bono publico, and it means for the public good. Essentially, pro bono work is when a professional offers their time, expertise or skills for free or at a reduced rate. So the team has come up with a way that they can use their powers for good, as all the best superheroes do. It's called the Innocence Project. There are similar projects around the world, but they're usually started by law societies, and lawyers will help people who've been wrongfully convicted to have their convictions overturned. I would hazard to say that this will probably be the first Innocence Project spearheaded by an organization like Microexpression Solutions. Now, this isn't a subject that gets a lot of exposure, but since this is a victim-focused podcast, I think it's only fair to talk about the victims of systemic failures too. And those people are often in prison for crimes they didn't commit. We know that our judicial system doesn't always do what it should. And if people that are guilty are not convicted, then it stands to reason that probably just as many people are convicted when they're not guilty. In most countries, if you can't afford a private lawyer, you're given a legal aid lawyer. Legal aid lawyers are extremely overworked and often do not have the time to properly apply themselves to cases. Sometimes a defendant will have up to 10 different legal aid lawyers before their case comes to trial. So are innocent people slipping through the cracks in our system? Absolutely. 
and that is something that the team hopes to start assisting with through the Innocence Project. And remember, if someone is wrongfully convicted, it's not just them that suffers. The victim in the crime doesn't get true justice. Their family doesn't get closure. No one wins except the person who really committed the crime, who's still out on the streets committing more crimes. Here's what the team had to say about their hopes for the Innocence Project. Yes, for the Innocence Project, you know, in South Africa we have found that there are so many people in jail. They can't all be guilty. And um, I've looked at the Innocence Project in the States where a lot of convictions were overturned. And I spoke to the team and uh, we've decided to start the Innocence Project in South Africa because if anyone is guilty, they should be in jail. But if they're innocent, they should not be in jail. And if I could um, uh, just touch on something that um, Nicole and I also talked about, um, helping the families would give them some type of closure on, on what, is, what is the truth, what, what happened. Everybody wants closure. And that's why we thought to think of the Innocent Project. They want closure. And if we can just get people out, that is, uh, everybody is not innocent. That I know for sure, because I've worked in prisons myself. But there is people that really got a very hard sentence that shouldn't be getting it. So if we can make the sentence less, I will gladly help to make it less. Or if the person is innocent, we want to get him out there. Him, her, child. This is just a wonderful opportunity you're giving us to get us out there. Thank you. And we've got, we've got lawyers, judges and advocates working with us that we can refer the people to, but they can use their own people as well. We don't force them to use whoever we are using, but we have some people that we know onto on his side as well that we can refer to. And if we don't know somebody, we can always find out and go find out who can take this case and reopen it. It's not just South Africa, it's the EU and um, the UK for Anto. And we want to give the people closure. The victims, we, want, we really want to give them closure and see that justice is done. And also with regards to the pro bono work, the reason why we're doing this is that we want to give something back to not only the community as a whole, but to justice in general. So if there's anything that we can do to be able to help, and just like Omori mentioned, not everyone is innocent, but if there is, if there is that a slight shred of evidence that the person is indeed innocent, then obviously we will do whatever we can to be able to make sure that that piece of the evidence is put forward to the right people. And then the case can then be, you know, re-looked at um, from a different perspective because sometimes, you know, things are missed or it's overlooked and so on and so forth. That's what we're trying to avoid. And that's what we're trying to raise um, as an issue and saying, guys, you know, something has been left out here. Have a look at this because that doesn't make sense. And it's not the case of I'm saying that you are guilty or you are innocent. I'm saying that what we've seen in the statement. So, for example, um, like Omori mentioned, when someone changed the statement two, three times, that means that they're trying to hide or they're being deceptive about something. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're guilty. They might be changing the statement because they're trying to protect someone that they know was also involved. And, and you know, so there's different dynamics to um, changing the statement from the statement 
side and from the microexpression side and from the body language side, you can get a lot more rather than just the testimony of the person as to what happened on that day. So they might be saying one thing, but they might be meaning something else. And that's come across multiple times. If you've watched um, different interrogation clips on YouTube, which are again, freely available, you'll be able to see that the person in question, they might be saying no, but they, their body is saying yes, or they might be saying yes and the whole body is saying no. Um, so it's also, you know, encompassing everything all together. It's not just what the person is saying as well. So in chatting about the Innocence Project today, I want to make a few pleas. Firstly, I know for a fact that I'm blessed with listeners in a wide range of fields, many of which involve law enforcement and investigation. The Innocence Project needs professionals who are willing to donate their time, even if it's only an hour a month, to helping with the cases they'll be working on. If you are ex-SAPS, a private investigator, a forensics expert, a forensic psychologist, a criminologist, or if you have any skill that you think could help the Innocence Project, please contact Microexpression Solutions by using the details I'll leave in the show notes. The second appeal is for cases. If you or someone you know has been wrongfully convicted, or if there's a similar case that you would like to request help with, please contact the team through the same channels. And as Amory said, this is applicable to cases all over the world, and they need volunteer services from professionals in every country. So wherever you're listening from, this applies to you. Here's what Amory had to say about their request for cases and the possibility of job creation through the project. And we know that the people don't have money to reopen a case. They don't have, so we want to do this pro bono, but we can't if we don't get funding. And if we can maybe create jobs for people, that would be wonderful because I've got lovely students, wonderful, capable people that did the course and they are currently sitting with our jobs because of the COVID situation we are in. And if we can create jobs and even just pay them a small salary to help us go through this and they are dedicated as like we are and we get new students in, we can do this. We, we need cases to store. The third plea I want to make is for help with funding this project. The Innocence Project has its own Patreon page and I'm proud to say that True Crime South Africa is their first Patreon. They regularly post interesting information about the science of deceptionology. And I can share that they will be starting their own podcast very soon. I'm super excited about that. The idea behind the Innocence Project is phenomenal, but they can't do it without funding. So if you're able, please become a Patreon. Or if you'd like to make a once-off donation, Contact Wendy, and I'm sure that can be arranged. Before we get into the analysis of the Krugersdorp killer's case, I asked Anto to tell me more about the corporate work he does. I come from a corporate background, and I found the use of these sorts of skills a fascinating idea. I asked him to give me a few examples of work he'd done recently. Here's what he had to say. 
Sure, sure, sure. Um, very recently, I was involved in an interview. So a company had hired me to, to observe um, uh, an interview of a candidate for a specific high-level position. And again, I was just observing, so I wasn't participating in the interview. I was just taking down my notes. And there was a point in time where they asked the student about their education. So the, the student had received, if I'm mistaken, it was either a master's or a PhD degree in a specific subject. And so the HR manageress and the line manager asked them one or two questions and I could tell from the body language of the actual candidate that there was something that he or she was uncomfortable with regards to the education question, right? So the HR managerist asked the question, line manager asked another question, and then they briefly skipped through that education aspect and then they concentrated more on the, on the uh, work experience. So prior to the actual interview um, finishing, I, you know, I said, so hold on, can I just, you know, if I may, um, just ask one or two questions with regards to education. So the person's, again, body language and, and posture changed completely, and I knew that there was something wrong. So I asked one or two questions. So for example, in your master's or a PhD degree that you have attained, did you write a thesis? And you know, they started stuttering, whereas before they were confident and they were, you know, they're selling themselves. And they said, yes, uh, uh, um, yeah, it was such a long time ago. I don't really remember, but yes. And it was probably three or four years ago. So I said, okay, can you elaborate on what was your thesis about? And, you know, what did you do in order to be able to gain uh, the data for your thesis? And the answers they were giving me, it didn't satisfy my needs, as in it was very ambiguous like I went onto the internet and I got data from there. Okay, but where exactly on the internet did you go? What website did you use? What resources did you use? Um, anyway, so long story short, I then uh, understood and the candidate then said that they did not do the thesis themselves. They had a friend help with the thesis. And then eventually they confirmed that they did not do the thesis themselves. They actually had a friend do it for them. So uh, from that aspect on the interviewing side, you know, people that are being interviewed, they will, they will sell themselves to you. They have to be salespeople, right? Because they have to be likable and lovable. So usually they will extend the truth. So in this case, the candidate did actually get the PhD degree or the master's degree, but they, they did not do the thesis. So when the question came up about education, their whole body structure, the micro expressions, everything just changed completely. And the HR manager and the line manager missed that completely. But obviously, because we're trained, I picked that up and I said, you know, let me just ask this guy a question because I, I, can't, I can't let this go. It's in my nature and this is what the company is paying for my services for. So that was the one thing. The second thing, which was very recent with regards to a sales manager. So I was involved in a corporate workshop with a sales manager who had issues with the team. So the team consisted of 23 people. And each person had his or her skill set with regards to the sales team. So some people were good at prospecting, some people were good at closing, some people were good at you know, objection handling and so on and so forth. And the reason why I was hired to be able to pick up specific individuals in the team that were the problem makers or the troublemakers within the team, and they were giving off negative feedback or negative um, responses to the rest of the team, and it was affecting the team in a negative way. And the sales manager said, you know, I know my team. I know each person individually, but I can't put my finger with regards to who is the person that's giving the negative feedback, who is the person that's, who's, who's causing issues further down the line. And 
I simply sat in one of the sales meeting and I saw the body language from, you know, the, the 20 or so individuals within the team. When they started discussing about targets, you could see the people roll their eyes. Some people more confident, some people will not. When they started talking about lead generation, you could see that some people were not really happy. Some people were very happy. And you could see the people that weren't really there. Like they were there in body, but they weren't, they weren't there in their psychology or in their soul. And you knew that automatically three people from the 20 or so group were actually looking for another job. And that's why they weren't there. And that's why they were causing issues because they knew they were going to leave. But again, the sales manager didn't know this. He didn't understand this because he wasn't emotionally intelligent enough to be able to pick up the subtle hints like rolling of the eyes or body posture or the words that they're using when they're having that interaction with, within their team or with the sales manager themselves. So again, we isolated this, we interviewed those three people and eventually they said, yes, we are looking for another job because I'm not happy because, you know, whatever the reasons were on a personal level. So, you know, those are the two, the two examples that come to mind from, from the past couple of months that I did sit in on, you know, either an interview or a meeting and, uh, you know, the deceptionology came very handy. Mainly corporate cases for the time or corporate um, situations currently, but with the Innocence Project and also being, you know, trying to, to read up with regards to court cases in Europe, I am trying to expand that as well to the, the legal side of things. But currently, my main line would be on the corporate side uh, within the European Union. Right. So now we get into micro expression solutions, analysis of some of the statements of the individuals convicted for 11 murders across the space of several years in Krugersdorp. The case was, of course, huge, and it's occupied mainstream media and the minds of the public for a long time. The court proceedings were relatively short, considering how many accused there were, as many of them pleaded guilty. If you haven't listened to my coverage of this episode, you may want to listen to that as well. The premise of this case was that a group of six people who called themselves Electus Perdius, or chosen by God, murdered 11 people between 2012 and when they were arrested in 2016. The believed ringleader of the group is a woman called Cecilia Stein. However, when the case went to trial, her best friend, Marinda Stein, no relation, attempted to convince the court that she had been responsible for everything and that Cecilia had no knowledge of the crimes. Also involved was Marinda's two children, Marcel Stein, who participated in her first murder at the age of 14, and LaRue Stein, who pleaded guilty and had gone to jail before the trial of Cecilia, Marcel, and another man called Zach Valentine. All three of the accused in this case, who pleaded not guilty or refused to take deals offered to them, were eventually found guilty and sentenced to several life sentences each. The dynamics behind this case were almost more salacious than the murders themselves, as the public tried to decide who was telling the truth and who was lying. As I mentioned in the beginning, if you'd like to follow along with each of the statements as they're analysed, you can grab them off social media. Otherwise, you'll still be able to follow along without them. We start off with the statement of Marcel Stein, 
At this time, she is 21 years old, but she really was just a child when most of these acts were committed. Evidence presented by the social workers in this case would lead many to feel that she was an unfortunate victim. When she speaks the words that follow, she's sitting in the dark and strikes a forlorn figure. Her face is a mask, and not the kind that protects you from COVID. She's almost completely emotionless, and she calmly sits with her hands folded in her lap. She's just told the court how she assisted in brutally murdering and robbing 11 people. And then she says, quote, I know that, um, me testifying and telling the truth and admitting what I've done and how sorry I am doesn't bring them back. And I realize that it doesn't take the pain away and that you're gonna, you're gonna walk with that for the rest of your life. And I contributed to that. And all I can say is, I'm sorry. I'm very sorry. End quote. Here's the team with their analysis of this statement and her micro-expressions. We so look at her body language and she's acting to be remorseful. She's very intelligent and she's, she lacks emotion. When she is on the stand... You can literally see that she's acting. There's no remorse. Anto's got a very interesting theory here about people being remorseful and showing it. Anto, could you share that with, with us? There's two aspects to this. When someone is talking about something that they've done and they are reliving the memory and it's something that's bad or relatively bad, like getting a speeding ticket and being stopped by the police to having their house broken into being hijacked and even things that they've done. So they've stolen something or they've killed someone or they've hurt someone, whether it's intentional or unintentionally, you will see some sort of emotion on the person's face. And not only this, but the whole body language of the person changes when they talk about this. So they become remorseful as in they they will lose eye contact they will you know slouch their shoulders a little bit they will look downwards they will not uh, use big words they'll try and keep the words limited and what marcel has done in both the statements where she said for example you know i just want to i've thought about this and i just want to say that i'm really sorry i know that i've caused issues to the families and i've caused pain and i want god to forgive me and so on and so forth at no point in that statement or that paragraph that she said has she does she show any cues of being remorseful of being empathetic of being sad or of being you know i'm guilty and i know that i've done this none of the actions that she's done whether it's through the micro expressions whether through the, it's the body language whether it's the eye contact that she has with the judge or the advocate or the investigator none of that matches and if you notice when she's describing how she killed michaela she uses exactly the same tone the same words she has the same facial expressions, she has the same body language, and she has the same eye contact. Now, when someone is reliving something as painful as what she's explaining us, then you would find at least you know, someone to cry, someone to pause before they say something, not to be able to recite it as if it's a story. 
For example, I've done this. I know it's bad. I'm really sorry. I'm remorseful. I know God would forgive me and I'm really sorry. You know, at the same time, I've done this. I've done that. And, you know, big deal. And I just left the house. So that just that, you know, the two, three sentences, both when she says, you know, I'm sorry for what I've done. And also she describes how she's killed the other person. You can see that they're exactly the same. And at no point in time does she show any remorse whatsoever. Even if she does later on, it's an act. She doesn't really feel it, but she's just showing that I have to be able to show. And at some point, she's not even able to do that, you know, fake it to, to a certain extent. So that's also very important. To see. It's not only the words that she's saying, but also the body language that she has and the, you know, the micro expressions and also the eye contact that she has with people while she's, you know, saying what she's saying. Something else that I just want to add, uh, I read in one of the articles, I can't remember the name of the person that wrote the article, that they say that she's actually a victim. And she's not a victim. She's, she's been manipulated, that I give. That I give. But uh, she's not a victim. She made victims. She's definitely not a victim. And she's very intelligent. She had six distinctions in matric, which show her intelligence. And she knows exactly what she did. So we took an extract out of her testimony. She says, I know that. And then she pauses. She says, um, me testifying and telling the truth and admitting what I had done and how sorry I am doesn't bring them back. So she knows exactly what she did. And I realized that it doesn't take the pain away and that you you're going to walk with that for the rest of your life. And I contributed to the, and then she stops again. And I can say it. I'm sorry. I am very sorry. To say you're sorry, it's just words. Anybody can say I'm sorry and don't mean it. And her, as Anto said, her body language shows us that she does, she's not remorseful. She doesn't care what she did. She knows what she did, but she doesn't care about it. So she's playing for time. Every time she says, um, and she stops and she uh, changes her word order, she just plays for time and she's making it up as she goes. When the person speaks out of memory, he doesn't um and ah to remember. And here we can see that she is creating as she's going on. So, of course, Anto is referring there to other testimony that Marcel gave where she described how she and her mother, Mirinda, had murdered Michaela Valentine in 2012. At the time, Marcel was 14 years old, and this testimony was pretty haunting. She described how she stabbed Michaela, who was unconscious, after having been drugged by her husband. The lack of emotion that Anta speaks to is very evident. But for the man on the street, we might look at her age and say, She must be traumatized, or maybe that's just how she expresses herself. Well, here we have three professionals telling us what the judge also acknowledged. Marcel Stein had absolutely no remorse for her role in the murders. Then we move on to a hidden camera interview that was conducted by an investigator with Cecilia Stein. This interview revolves around Zach Valentine, who faked his own death with the help of other members of Electus Perdias, and in the process, they murdered Jared Jackson to use him as a body double of sorts. 
The transcript reads as follows. Cecilia, I don't have an evil, well, I might have an evil twin. Hang on. Investigator, would you mind if I just refer to him as Zach? Cecilia, yes, yes. Investigator, he passed away on the 16th of December last year from a car accident. The car burned. Cecilia, yes, yes. The day before he left to go fly fishing in Clarence. So he left, and I mean, he left here about six. So we took it like four hours later he should be there. Investigator. They say the body was taken to, um, Bethlehem. Cecilia. Yes, yes, that's the closest. Here's what Wendy had to say about her analysis of this exchange. With the interview, she says, I don't have an evil, and she paused. So we want to know, you know, what did she want to say? Have an evil what? And then she went on to say, well, I might have an evil twin, hang on. Now, hang on, she's creating expectation, and that's a sign of a manipulator. And the investigator said to her, uh, you know, would you mind if I just referred to him as Zach? And she said, yes, yes, which means she does mind. She should have said no. Now, he passed away on the 16th of December last year in a car accident. Again, the car burned. And Cecilia answered, yes, yes. Uh, the day before, he left to go fly fishing, in her words, in Clarence. So he left, which is an exaggeration. He, she wants you to believe what she's saying and I mean he left here telling us exactly where he left from again another exaggeration she wants to make the audience know where he left from and then she said at about six now six is also a deceptive number sign of deception now you'll notice that Wendy referred to the number of deception when Cecilia spoke about Zach leaving around 6 a.m. This concept fascinated me, and Amory expanded on it for us. Usually when people refer to the number three, it's, it's not a definite fact that they are being deceptive, but when you go back into your ch uh, childhood years, everything was three. It was the three little bears, uh, three little pigs. If, you, if you're not sure of a number, you usually use the number three. Uh, I will tell my child, I found you three times, and if I go back, I say I found it four times. But you revert back to the number three because you can't remember what, how many times that I, in my case, how many times I found her. So I, I'm not deceptive, I can't remember. So when we see the number three or any multiples of the number three, like six or nine or 30, you automatically mark it as an indication of, uh, of the cluster you are looking for. As Amarie stresses, you cannot say for sure that a person is not being honest if they use the number three or multiples thereof, but it certainly is a very interesting indicator. And now we look at a conversation between a court official and Marinda Stain. She is referring to the murder she admitted to committing of semi-retired pastor Reginald Ben Dixon. 
The man was a mentor to a woman called Ria Grunewald. Grunewald was not involved in the murders, but it's widely believed that her decision to break off her friendship-slash-relationship with Cecilia is what sparked some of the first murders. The transcript reads as follows. Mirinda. He made her a very bitter person, yes. Court official. So he had to be killed. Mirinda. I decided so, yes. I wanted to, I wanted to also feel what it feels like to kill someone. And I wanted to kill him. It was an adrenaline rush. To be there. It was scary, but exciting at the same time. And to actually do it. I felt a release after doing it, like I've never felt before in my life. Let's hear what the team thinks about this. And she said he made her a very bitter person. Yes. Now, because she's put the yes at the back, it's the wrong order of the sentence. It should be, yes, he made her very a very bitter person. After she was told that then he had to be killed. And she said, yes, I decided so. Again, that's a wrong order of the sentence. And you'll see through that, uh, it will go through the sentence. She uses I quite a lot. She takes ownership of what she's done. I decided so, yes. I wanted also to feel what it feels like to kill someone. And I wanted to kill him. It was an adrenaline rush to be there. It was scary, but exciting at the same time. And to actually do it. Now, the word actually, she's comparing two thoughts. So she's thinking of something else while she's giving you this answer, this version of her answer. I felt a release after doing it like I've never felt before in my life. Now, the excessive use of I is an indication of being either tense or maybe lying. In her case, we feel um, she was tense and she took ownership. There's a lack of the pronoun I. It's an indication that the person is not committed to their story. So, Marinda Stain's constant refrain was that she alone was responsible for most of what happened between 2012 and 2016. She did admit that her son LaRue was involved, as well as Zach Valentine and John Barnard, but she was always trying to protect Cecilia and Marcel. When Wendy mentioned the constant use of the word I, I asked whether this could be because she was trying to deflect responsibility from Cecilia and Marcel onto herself. This is what Anto had to say. If someone uses the same word multiple times in a sentence, it means that they're trying to make you believe, right? So, for example, if I say, you know, are you having any issues with your internet today? And I am, but I don't want you to know that I am. I'm not going to say, no, 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 of course not. Everything is fine, right? The answer to the question is either no or it's a yes. It's either one or or. But um, when she's saying I, I, I continuously, you, you know, you feel that something isn't right, She's not saying the truth or she is trying to hide something that's behind this. And probably like you mentioned, when she's saying I, she's trying to take the attention on herself to say, you know, I've done this. Don't look at anybody else. I decided to do this. Don't look at anybody else. 
So there's, there's, there's two factors to this. But if you would look at this as a neutral perspective, someone using the word I multiple times in a single sentence would automatically assume that there are, they are being deceitful or they are trying to hide something. Looking at the background of the story and the history between you know, the, the two, three people, then you can tell that she is trying to also take the attention away from one person and draw the attention to her. That way, you know, she takes the ownership and people think, okay, she's, she's guilty for sure. She's done it because she said it like a thousand times that she's done it, she's done it, she's done it. The, the one thing also that I do want to touch on is that when she speaks to the judge and she says, I'm really sorry for what I've done, you know, I, I do apologize. She mentions the word she's having, she, she mentions the word nightmare. And she says that she has nightmares and she can't sleep at nights because she sees the victim's family and friends and all the pain that they've gone through. Now, someone who's done what she's done or someone who says that they've done what she's done, you wouldn't really have nightmares of other people, what they think of you or what, how they look at you in court or outside the court. You would actually have nightmares of the things that you've done, right? Rather than, you know, nightmares of people just looking at you with upset eyes or remorse eyes or tearful eyes or sadness. So that doesn't match as well. So continuously throughout the trial and throughout her statements, She's saying something, but then she's saying something else, which is completely different. But you are right. When someone says I multiple times, they are trying to deflect. They are being deceitful. But in this case, we know the history between her and also Cecilia, which means that she wants to take all the blame. So just put it on me. I'm willing to go to prison and let everyone else free because they're not guilty. It was all me. One item I would also like to add together with this is that there was one of the world's biggest Ponzi schemes a couple of years ago from Bernie Madoff. And when the Securities and Exchange Commission in the US found out about this, continuously, Bernie Madoff said, it's all me. No one else knew about this. It was just me. It was me. It was me. It was me. And in the statement, even, he was using the I, 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 I continuously. And the reason why he was doing this is because he was trying to protect the other people that were in it, although being just a few people, but one of those people was also his son, his youngest son. So again, he was trying to deflect the attention from other people on top of him. He was being honest, but he wasn't being completely honest with the investigators. So the usage of the word I multiple times also can be a, a, a deflecting um, aspect. So don't look at anything else. It's me. I'm telling you I've done it. And let's just you know, finish with the story right here, right now. Now, one of the group's first murders was Michaela Valentine, who I mentioned earlier. It would be shown that she wanted to leave the group. And this was the reason for her murder. Marinda was trying to pull away from the narrative that there was any group dynamic because she wanted to protect the others. So she insists that there was another motive for her murder. Quote, Before that day, Zach and I spoke and he said that um, she wanted to go to the police and she's not happy. But even before that, he wasn't happy with her either because because she was unfaithful to him. So, so the two of the things together, he felt that he had to kill her. He would make a mess of it. End quote. Michaela Valentine was allegedly present at the first murder that this group ever committed. 
and it seems that it was taking a huge emotional toll on her, and she wanted to confess to the police. Here's what the team had to say about this statement. Marinda says, before that day, Jock and I spoke and he told me that um, she wanted to go to the police and she's not happy, but even before that, he was not happy with her either. Now, there's a certain cluster of words that we look at and one of uh, one of the clusters we look at is the word that. That means to distance yourself from something. So the, that before that day, she's already distancing herself and putting a distance between her and what happened that day. And if you go on in the sentence, he was not happy with her either. It's either or or what. She didn't complete the sentence here. It's either because she was unfaithful to him. The word either. So the two of them, uh, the two of the things together, he felt that it had to kill her. He would make a mess of it. Making a mess of what? The actual killing, or she's more experienced in killing. There's two options here. Making a mess of what? One of the other murder robberies that the group committed was that of Peter and Joan Mayer. The couple were allegedly convinced that they were doing a business deal with Marinda and Zach, and once they were inside their house, they tied them up and then stabbed them to death. This was part of Marinda's description of the event. Quote, The plan was to rob them, and bind them, and put them in the pool. The pool didn't have water in it before, so at a point when everyone was comfortable sitting and talking, I said, this isn't going to work for me. And I took out the gun and I said, lie down. And um, um, uh, we bound them with, uh, with uh, between Zach and I, between us, we bound them with uh, cable ties. But he started acting weird. Zach just went berserk and he started stabbing them. And I basically went into shock because that's not how we planned to do it, and we didn't know where the money was yet. End quote. Miranda Stein said, uh, the plan was to rob them and bind them and put them in the pool. The pool didn't have water in it before. Now the question is, were they planning to put water in? Did they plan to put water in afterwards? Uh, we don't know. But the word before is, is a question. And then she went on to say so, um, and the word so, with the word so, she created an expectation. At a point when everybody was comfortable sitting and talking, I said, this is not going to work for me, and I took out the gun and I said, lie down. So now again, we see the word I, I being used continually, taking ownership of her decisions and then she went on um 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 now she's thinking she's got time to think about what she wants to say next now we'll see she says we bound them it's not i anymore it's now we bound them with a between zuck and i between us we bound them with a cable ties now she's using a as a singular and cable ties as many which is also something to look at because it's not just one there were two people she then says uh, Zach started acting weird now 
what does what does she mean by the word weird? Anto, do you want to add something there? So again, uh, the the two things that are that are off with that whole statement is that she uses the plural and then the singular in one sentence, right? And the other thing, the other aspect is that it seems like the situation escalated within a matter of seconds because no one was doing anything about the situation, which again, it doesn't make sense. It shows, and she mentions that um, because that is not how we planned to do it. So it seems like they had spoken about this and they said, okay, look, we're going to go, we're going to do this, 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 this. And because things didn't go according to plan from what she's saying, then, you know, she just decided to go completely off script and do something unexpected. Or, you know, he decided to do something unexpected, which again, it doesn't make sense. When you have a plan, whatever happens unexpectedly, you still try to stick to your plan until you know for a fact that you can't proceed with your plan due to specific limitations or issues um, pertaining to that aspect. But you don't just flip your mind and say, you know, to hell with the plan, we're going to do something completely different in a matter of seconds. It, it doesn't work that way. The human brain needs time to process things, especially when you're in a situation like this where, you know, you end up tying someone, you're going to steal his or her money. Um, and, you know, you're talking about the swimming pool didn't have water, which doesn't really make sense, but you were going to throw them in the pool. Was that part of the plan? No, it wasn't. You had a gun, he had a knife, he stabbed, you shot. So there's, it's like someone just trying to make up a story as they go along. And you can see from the inconsistencies of the tenses, what she's saying, um, things like acting weird. And then he went berserk. Berserk is not something, it's not a word that you would use, but it's a word that you would use to be able to show that he was uncontrollable. So I, I couldn't control him or he just really flipped out. Why would he do this? Since they took the cable ties, they tied up the person, whatever the case may be. And okay. And then we proceed with the plan, right? What was the plan? So there's multiple aspects again with that, with those two, three paragraphs that it just doesn't sit well. It doesn't make sense at the end of the day. It's not a normal human behavior. It's not the same uh, process that you would follow if someone is willing to have a plan in place and then act on that plan. If something goes wrong, you still try to stick to that plan. You don't just say, oh, well, you know, to hell with it. Let's just do something completely different and go with the flow. It just doesn't happen, especially in a, in a pressure situation like this. In both Marcel and Marinda's testimonies, they frequently use the phrase, I went into shock or I froze. I asked the team what they thought about this. Narenda also continued to say, I basically went into shock. Now the word basically, you know, you either go into shock or you don't. You don't basically go into shock. So she's been making up as she goes along. And also at the end of the day, if I say something happened and I just froze, by doing this, I'm stopping the sentence. I'm giving myself to think of what to say next. And I'm putting you in a difficult position because now you don't know what other questions to ask me or how to proceed with a question. Because I can say, I just froze. I don't know what happened. I just literally froze. I basically went into shock. I don't know what happened. You, you can't then ask another question after that. You, you kind of break my thinking process of, okay, I'm going to ask you this question and that question. Plus, it gives me time to think about 
you know, what can I say next? What, what, what other thing can I add to my story to make it more believable? Cecilia Stein cut an interesting figure on the stand. She almost gave off the feeling that her time was being wasted by the court. She didn't seem concerned that she was on trial for 11 murders, and she was plainly arrogant and argumentative at times. Her face, in my opinion, was also mask-like, and she had this unblinking stare that was quite off-putting. Although these were things that I noticed, it wasn't something that I thought much about until I heard the team analyse part of her testimony. So we start with the advocate and the advocate asks her a question. Uh, you heard the evidence that Michaela had to go to your place every Thursday. Cecilia says, yes, I heard that. Advocate then says, and you are saying that is not true. Cecilia, no, because some Thursdays she actually went to go visit her mother. It was her day off. Now, the word actually means that she's comparing two thoughts together, right? And she doesn't let us know what those two thoughts are. And when she says it was her day off, she doesn't give us an explanation as to what does that mean. So does she take a day off because she was sick? She took a day off from work? She could day, day off because her, you know, it was a public holiday? What was the, the day off significance? Then the advocate says, so why would you have to come frequent to your place on a Thursday, which is a non-qualifying question? Um, he should have rather said something on the lines of, why should anyone have come to your place on a Thursday? So what was the reason why they were meeting, especially on Thursday? Then Cecilia mentions, um, there's a slight pause, so she's trying to process of what to say. Then she says, in the mornings, we went to Mug and Bean. Then, well, dot, 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 dot. Normally, we would go either do hair. The thing is that she's thinking about this, right? She, she's not reciting from memory. She's trying to make it up as she goes along. And another thing that we've noticed that on, on both occasions, when the establishment Mug and Bean is mentioned, when she's mentioned this in her sentences, she seems to lose her train of thought. So she's, she, everything that she's saying afterwards doesn't kind of make sense from the rest of the sentence that she's saying. So that leads us to believe that Mug and Bean, the actual establishment, there, there is a significant there's, there's something that's significant to her, either a memory or an event or, or something to that extent where she's trying to control herself, but she can't because, you know, your conscious, your subconscious kind of kicks in and says, you know, this happened, that happened. So you, you, you start to lose your train of thought. Then advocate says, you're not answering uh, my question. Why? Then Cecilia says to spend the day with me. Advocate insisting why, which is obviously you would say, because we're friends, we wanted to spend time together to, whatever the case may be. So then Cecilia, she gets frustrated and she says to spend the day with me. So she gets irritated and she's giving the same answer. The reason why she's doing this is she doesn't want to veer off course and say something that she's not supposed to say. So she's simply repeating herself not to say anything different. Advocate, but why should she spend the day with you? Again, you know, what is the reason? What's the underlying reason? Then Cecilia replies back saying, cause Wednesdays she was at work. And you'll notice that she has a small smirk or a smile, much towards a more contempt smile. And that's more of an, you know, it's, it's an expression of someone who's being arrogant or showing a bit of arrogance. And she's also kind of testing the intelligence of the advocate. So she's pushing her boundaries. Now, someone that says, cause Wednesday, she's at work. 
well, obviously she's at work probably the rest of the week, right? And she only had Thursday off. So why would you mention that specific point again? Advocate then says, are you saying that you and Michaela were good friends? That's why she came to you? Cecilia's response, we were friends, yes. So she avoids the question and she answers it in a different order. Instead of saying, yes, we were friends, she says, we were friends, yes. Which again, it doesn't make sense. If someone asks you a yes or no question, you answer it with either a yes or no, and then you elaborate on, the, on your response, right? Then the advocate says, close friends. So the advocate is trying to understand the relationship. Cecilia says, yes, we were. Advocate, frequently she visited you on Thursdays. Cecilia, um, dot, 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 meaning she's trying to think now, like, what do I have to say now for it to make sense so I can make it linked to the statement I just gave them above? If she didn't go to her mom or had any other appointments, she would come to me, yes. So again, she should have just said yes. If she didn't have anything else to do, she would have come to my place rather than if she didn't have anything to do, she would come to my place. Yes, that's correct. Again, it's not a free flowing sentence and the wording is not really as is. I mean, you can tell that there's something wrong there automatically. Advocate, you've already testified about the visit, um, Discovery Insurance. You recall in the video, you mentioned that two Zimbabweans were arrested for the death of Michaela. Cecilia, yes, I did. You see how she responds now? She says, yes. And then she says, I did. So yes. And then the justification of the yes or no answer. And then advocate then says, they were never charged, just released and deported. Cecilia, I said that they were going to get deported. Yes. You see the wording again? It, it, she answers the question with a statement and then she says yes. Instead of saying yes, like I told you, they were going to get deported. And here you can also see that she's becoming irritated or uh, flustered at her response. Advocate, or something to that effect. Cecilia says, yes. I did say that. Again, yes. Yes is either yes or no. And then she justifies a response. And then she adds a second yes towards the end of the sentence. That signifies that she's just trying to be a little bit cocky or arrogant. Like, yeah, that's what I told you, right? I mean, that's, that's what I've been telling you, correct? You just try to re-justify what you're saying, but in a more arrogant way, in a more egoistic way to a certain extent. Then the advocate says, but that's totally false. So now Cecilia needs to think up of what my response should be. And she says, no, gives the answer, yes, no. That was true according to what I knew. Was, should be, is true, right? If something is true, it can't be, it can't be previously it was true. It means that there's, it's not true now, which means that it's not the truth. She says she gave herself away here because she says that she was told she knew. What else did she know that she's not saying in the statement? right? Advocate, where did you get your information? Cecilia, now she's trying to think. Johan van Weyck. Now, she says Johan van Weyck, but because there's no real weight to that response, and she's afraid that she's going to get more, more questions to her response, she throws in the word Captain Johan van Weyck. So she goes, um, Johan van Weyck, Captain Johan van Weyck. And she's trying to do this to deflect to put the blame on someone else, while at the same time, she's talking about a captain. So if a captain said this, you're not going to readdress it and say, are you sure the captain is correct? Because it's a captain, right? It's not just someone on the street. 
So she's trying to deflect the guilt and to give the guilt to someone else, a scapegoat mentality. And at the same time, with the, with the spaces in between her response, she's looking for time. She's trying to think of things. That's why she doesn't say it was Captain Johan or Captain Johan van Weyck. She says Johan van Weyck, Captain Johan van Weyck. So that means don't ask me any more questions. Speak to him directly. Advocate. So he told you that they were arrested for the death, correct? Then Cecilia says, Marinda and I were sitting at Mug and Bean. She phoned him to find out um, when it, can she get her keys back? Again, the sentence is not free-flowing. Something is wrong because her train of thought is, is messed up here due to the fact that she's referring to the establishment Mug and Bean. So this is the second time she does this. So she phoned just to find out when she can get her keys because he still had a set of her car keys. They had an argument over the phone. She asked him, mm. so she's trying to tell a story and you can tell that she's trying to tell a story because it's not free flowing. She's not telling exactly what happened, right? And she's trying to reproduce the conversation and she wants to exaggerate specific things like, she says, oh, she was upset. She was screaming. She was mad. She was, it was a bad conversation. Something to accident. They were rude with each other. So she's trying to divert the attention and put the, co the co whole conversation of the advocate with her towards that argument. So she can then, again, deflect it on someone else and not her. She mentions that she was rude to him and she asked him, so when am I going to get my keys back? And he says, when I'm done, they were found protein on the keys. So she says, instead of worrying about my keys, why don't you solve Michaela's murder? And he told us that, well, she was on the speakerphone. So she's telling a story. And instead of for you to be able to believe the facts that she's putting together, the first question the advocate would say is, how do you know what was the conversation? But she realized that halfway through the conversation, ah, yes, the speakerphone was on. That's the first thing you should have said, right? She just said, she phoned, the speakerphone was on, and that's the, the discussion that we had. So in, in this whole sentence, and she says that um, arrests have been made, they arrested Zimbabweans. So she says arrests have been made. So one person, it's singular. And then she refers to arrested Zimbabweans, plural. So it's either one person or two people. So that way there's, you can see there's an inconsistency in the story as well that she's saying. So Zimbabweans for the break-in in the area and they will be deported. So since we believe uh, Michaela's murder was a break-in, we believed it was for that. Again, she's evading the question. She's giving a response to a more story-like feel to this. And there's multiple things. She's playing for time. She's got issues with the tenses. She's, um, the wording doesn't make sense in the sentences. She's mixing up the tenses today, tomorrow. And she's also distancing herself to a certain extent from that situation, deflecting it on someone else having that conversation. Advocate. He never said it was a break-in of Michaela, Cecilia. No. Advocate. You now changed your evidence a bit, ma'am. Break-ins are not the same as break-ins of Michaela. Do you agree? Which is a good qualifying question in our opinion. Cecilia. Sort of. If I ask, spanning time. So sort of is... Not usually a yes or no answer. It's, it's an unusual word to use in that specific question because the question is direct. Do you agree, yes or no? You know, it's either black or white. There's no gray to this answer. Do you agree, yes or no? And she says sort of. So she's not really giving you the answer because there's something else behind the answer. 
So the advocate, how can it be sort of the same? So, you know, credit to the advocate for picking up that word. Cecilia, no. If I ask you, why don't you solve Michaela's murder? And you said there was arrests made on Zimbabweans for break-ins in the area. What are you going to think? So automatically she's trying to shift the blame and she's putting the advocate in her position. That's not the case. She's being questioned for this, not the advocate, right? So automatically she says, well, it's normal because we spoke about this and I assumed or perceived that this was the case, which is not the case. But she's trying, again, she's trying to grab specific things and make it into a believable story. And as she goes along, she feels that she's losing the grip on the story to make it believable. So the advocate then says, you stated it as a fact. Cecilia, it is a fact, it is a fact that is what it what he told me. So now she's stumbling. She's using the word what twice. It doesn't really make sense. It's becoming more argumentative. So she's becoming flustered because she knows that what she's saying, it's not probably not 100% true. She's extending the truth and she's adding things in between. Advocate, I'm going to repeat it. You stated it as a fact that people were arrested for the murder of Michaela. Cecilia's response, uh-huh. So here she doesn't give a yes or no answer. What, what response is it, uh-huh? That's something, that, that's something that a child would say when they know that they're guilty, right? They don't want to confirm that they are guilty. So she's trying to evade the question with, a, you know, with not giving a direct answer. Yeah. And she's consciously doing this and she just wants to move on. She's like, okay, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh, let's go on because she feels uncomfortable. Advocate, but that's not true. Cecilia, he told us there were people arrested. So now she's changing her language, right? And she's changing from Zimbabweans to people because she says he told us that people were arrested, not Zimbabweans, where before she was referring to Zimbabweans. Again, this means that she's getting flustered. Advocate, that people at that time was arrested for Michaela. Cecilia responds, yeah. Not yes, not no, but yeah. So the language again changes again. Advocate, which is a lie, I put it to you. Cecilia, okay, you're gonna have to ask him. So again, she's deflecting the response. She's throwing the responsibility to someone else and she's becoming very frustrated. And you can also see from the body language and the micro expression, she's becoming visibly frustrated. Advocate mentions something which is inaudible, followed by testified that she had a discussion with you shortly before Natasha's murder. Cecilia, okay, not a yes, not a no answer. Advocate, later on, she realized that you were getting information from her. Do you recall that? Cecilia, yes, I recall her saying that. Yes, again. She's using the word yes twice and there's a slight tone of arrogance in that response. She might also be happy that the conversation is moving along and they're not getting stuck on the Zimbabweans and their people and how she knew. Advocate, and your evidence today is that was all just a joke with regards to the dog. So now Cecilia, she's happy because she says, oh yeah, about the dog. Yes, it, uh, it was just, and then there was an interruption. Now you can automatically tell, even without even looking at the words that she used, you can tell from her 
Yeah, she's relieved. She's like, okay, now we're going to talk about someone spray painting a dog, right? And she's happy that the conversation has gone from the Zimbabweans, from the break-in of how she knew, to coloring a dog. And I assume she also feels a bit amused by that situation. And she feels happy that the conversation is no longer dedicated purely on her. The light is not shining on her now. It's shining on the dog being painted. So sign of relief, you know, now she can elaborate on what happened. Advocate, do you know where Natasha stayed in Pretoria? Cecilia answers, yes, I did. You see, yes, followed by the statement or the, the reason why she knows where she lived. Advocate, where did you get that information from? Cecilia, it was on Ria's attendance list. Advocate, where did she stay? Testing to see if she knows the exact address. Cecilia, being smart, she says, in Pretoria, mm, read something, uh, I can't remember, but it was in Pretoria. So there she knows, but she's just playing for time because she doesn't want to give out too much information, but she doesn't want to say that she didn't know because she just says she knew where she was staying. Advocate, which suburb? Cecilia, I have no idea. But she just said in Pretoria, so she has to have some sort of understanding of where in Pretoria, right? Also good to notice that no idea is just another way to try and avoid another question following on this. So she just said, I don't know. I have no idea. Don't ask me anything else about this, right? Followed on by, I didn't memorize it, which is a bit sarcastic and, and, and comical and arrogant because he never asked her, did you memorize where she was staying? So the advocate says, no, I'm just checking your memory, ma'am. At that point, also micro expression, she has a small smirk on her face because she feels that this conversation is, is, is finished. She, she's dominating the conversation now and she's driving the questions. Cecilia, I've been arrested for three years. Now, something that we teach in our courses as well is that majority of the time, the number three is a sign of deception. So if someone says, I've been in, in prison for three years, or I've tried to call you three times, I've sent you six emails, multiple of threes, it's usually that they're being deceptive, and maybe they just called you once instead of three times. Or maybe they sent you two emails instead of three. These things happened in 2012. I don't remember the address, but if I had Ria's attendance, I had their telephone numbers and their addresses which is a contradiction to what she said before because she said she had Ria's attendance. Then in this statement, she says, if I had Ria's attendance, but she just said that she had, but now she's saying she didn't. Advocate, why would you have Ria's attendance list? Cecilia, it was in my house. So the question here would be, why would... Ria's attendance list be lying around in Cecilia's house. I mean, what affiliation did they have between the two? Advocate, a document or in the computer? So it's just trying to be able to see what kind of source that information was coming from. Cecilia, no document. You see here, she gives a yes or no answer and then she gives a statement or she gives a justification. Now, if someone asks you what is a document or a computer, you would say document or a computer. There is no yes or no question to this. So it's either a document or a computer. She says no, followed by the word document, which doesn't make sense. 
advocate who was on that attendance list. Now the advocate is trying to test if she remembers any other names, if she's going to slip and give any other names that she's not supposed to. But Cecilia, she's smart. And she says, um, it was, so she's trying to pause to think about what words and what names to give. Oh goodness. Oh goodness is additional fluff words that she's adding there again to buy time. Then she says the name Nat. Then there's a slight pause. It was a few other people. So again, it, there's a fractured sentence and she's only referring to the name that people know that was on that list. Any other names that people don't know which existed on that list, she's not going to divulge that information. Exactly. And you're not going to carry on asking any questions pertaining to this because like I said, I have no idea. Oh my goodness. Uh, I have no clue. It's just statements for you to stop asking me questions because like I said, Oh my goodness, I don't remember. I have no clue. I have no idea. And there's five signs that we looked at, and this is just a fraction of what we do. The five signs that someone is lying to you. They touch their face, their mouth, or their throats. Subconscious, that's their subconscious body language. They do this without realizing it. And then they can repeat themselves. They pause before answering. They look towards a door with a window or opening. And then they organize their thoughts to be able to make the story believable. And this is exactly what she's doing here. And they don't blink. And she literally blinks. You, you can't see her blinking. You have to go and look to see when she's blinking. And trying to look you in the eye to be convincing. Something interesting that Antor brought up in his analysis was this. Whenever she's talking, whenever Cecilia's talking about mug and bean, which is the location, on both occasions she freezes. So she doesn't finish her sentence. At the top she says, in the morning we went to mug and bean, then, uh, and then she, you know, she loses it. And then at the bottom she says, Miranda and I were sitting at mug and bean. She phoned him to find out. Uh, so automatically there, if I was someone interviewing her, I would try and concentrate more on that location because that location seems to have a more significant meaning to her on something that's happened there either on that day or before than anything else. Because both times she mentions that place, both times she loses her, uh, her formal responses. And it seems weird that she's actually doing that where everything else she's answering, she's answering you know, to the T. Like, this is what we did and that's what happened. But these two places specifically on that same, same location, something is off completely. Amari and Wendy also picked up on this. And it seems that the place might have had some sort of significance for Cecilia. Maybe she just really likes their toasted sandwiches, but probably not. Yeah, there's a greater significance than what we know. Um, and unfortunately, the advocate didn't pick that up. Obviously, because of the body language and the word usage, maybe, you know, it's something that they missed. Obviously, they did miss. But like you said, it might be nothing. But the reason why she's doing this is because she's trying to hide something or she's trying to not say something. And that's what's interesting, interesting to us because she's not saying something, but her body, her word usage and everything just completely changes. We agreed after a while that there's a good chance that Cecilia and Mirinda had undertaken a lot of the planning behind the murders and robberies at Mug and Bean. We did have a good laugh, because we really don't want to give Mug and Bean a bad name. So if anyone from Mug and Bean is listening, we are definitely not saying that everyone goes to Mug and Bean to plan murders. I personally love Mug and Bean, 
and I would have no problem being sponsored with free takeout lattes from them. This mug and bean definitely had significance for Cecilia, though. You may say, well, so what? Cecilia and Miranda liked mug and bean. Well, Amari explained that if they had access to these statements before the trial, detectives could have included this location as part of their investigation. The significance of that is that if the staff at that establishment were interviewed, they may well have been able to testify to overheard snippets of conversation or the dynamic between the two women, or whoever else Cecilia met there. They may even have been able to identify other members of Electus Pedias. At the end of the day, Cecilia was given several life sentences, but I think that this highlights how valuable the work that Microexpression Solutions does, and how, if they can be more involved in the earlier stages of cases with the SAPS, or even train SAPS members in these techniques, it could make a huge difference. Another interesting point that Anto made about Cecilia's testimony was the following. There's also other things that we didn't mention here in the statement because this is more on the microexpressions in body language. But when Cecilia refers to her kids, her son specifically, you will notice that during the court hearing, she, when she speaks about her son, her body posture changes her eyes open up, she has a smile on her face, her whole body structure changes. When she's giving the statements and she's referring to specific things, you can see that that's not the case. And the same thing applies to the location mug and bean. I, I can't stress this enough because it's been bothering me every single time I'm watching the, the, the clip. Something else has happened there. They spoke about something else. They did something else. Something that's happened there is a bigger meaning to her than what she's just saying, oh, we went there for coffee, we spoke, and that's not the case. She, she is, she's not saying something that's related to that. And you can tell that it's not something nice because she starts stumbling her words. I mean, when you look at the trial, she's cool, calm, collected. She thinks about the answers. She processes them. She becomes cocky at times because she knows that what she's saying is believable and, you know, the advocate is also, you know, not asking her additional questions on those things. But the mug and bean, that, that doesn't sit well with me. There's something else there. And in between asking the questions from the advocate, from my perspective, when she completely changes her demeanor and her body language and her facial expressions when she's talking about her son, if I was the advocate, what I would have done is I would have slipped in the son during my questioning just to be able to break her concentration as well. So you would say, for example, uh, so you went to Mug and Bean. What did you guys talk about? Just out of curiosity, how old is your son now? Uh, so, sorry, going back to Mug and Bean, when you guys went there, what did you do? You see, so you kind of break the train of thought as well. And it's basically what they do in interrogation techniques or the police use when they stop you for a traffic violation. Uh, they don't go directly and say, give me your license. They say, how, how are you? Where are you guys traveling from? They try and do that on a personal level. So, you know, if I was the advocate, I would suggest to the advocate to, to do that as well and throw in even the son's name, refer to another person with the same name and see her reaction. And automatically the train of thought will change. And it's difficult to change from one train of thought to another train of thought that quickly. So if you ask me a question, what did you eat at Magyam Bean? 
She's going to say, I don't really remember because it was such a long time ago, you know, whatever the case may be. And then just concentrate a little bit on this and then throw in the, the son's name and the daughter's name and, you know, anything else. I think refer back to the location and you'll end up, I mean, they'll slip up sooner or later. And, and she does without even knowing she does. So that's another way that these skills can add value. A lot of attorneys and magistrates are actually really good at questioning techniques. But when you add in the types of observations that Ansu is talking about, it takes things to a totally different level. And that is a wrap of today's episode. I really enjoyed e-meeting and chatting with Amari, Wendy and Anto, and I would like to express my gratitude for them for taking the time to talk to me about their work. You'll be hearing me talking about their work a lot more in the future, as they've kindly offered to weigh in on future cases. And I'm not going to say too much, but they have also been looking at how they can possibly help on some of our unsolved cases. I can't tell you how many people have told me since I started this podcast that they'd love to study subjects related to this type of work. So here's your chance. I highly recommend you go over to their website, which is at www.microexpressionsolutions.co.za and spend some time there. It is a wealth of information that I didn't have time to include here. I would also really love it if you could support their work at the Innocence Project through Patreon. And remember that if you have a case you'd like them to look at, or if you're a professional who'd like to offer your services to the project on a pro bono basis, get hold of Wendy, because it really is a worthwhile project. I hope you enjoyed the content in today's episode. I'd love to hear what you thought, and if you're thinking about taking one of the courses, if you enjoyed the episode, please be sure to follow us on the app you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. I'll be back next Friday with a new episode. Until then, thank you for your support and I'll chat to you soon.